What will we do with a drunken sailor? What will we do with a drunken sailor? What will we do with a drunken sailor early in the morning? Way hey and up she rises, way hey and up she rises, way hey and up she rises early in the morning. Yes, it's time for an episode on Bonnie Pirate Lasses. When we usually talk of pirates, we think of big bearded dudes with a peg leg, a hook for a hand and an eye patch. Not content with talking about bearded blokes, today we're going to visit ancient Illyria, Morocco, Ireland, England and the West Indies, and finally China, to meet some incredibly fierce pirates. I'm Natalie, this is Across the Ages. We're going to start our pirate fan club in the 3rd century BCE in ancient Illyria, which is in the modern-day Balkan Peninsula. In the 3rd century BCE, Hannibal, general of Carthage, led his army of elephants and men over the Alps, and over in the east, the Chinese terracotta army was created. Queen Tauta of Illyria was an ancient queen who ruled over a powerful Illyrian kingdom. She was the queen of the Ardei tribe and spent a lot of her time pissing off the Romans. Queen Tauta was the wife of King Agron, who spent his time building up the Illyrian naval forces in the Mediterranean. The kingdom's power grew and he ended up winning a battle with Greece's Aetolian people. Legend has it that Agron celebrated a bit too hard by smashing the booze and died the same year. Seeing as his only heir was an infant at the time, Queen Tauta took the throne. She is portrayed as an aggressive ruler and started to expand the Illyrian territories even further. So yes, she was a badass queen, but when does she become a badass pirate? Well, at the time, piracy was not illegal in Tauta's territory, to the point where it was practically an Illyrian tradition. The shore of her homeland was a paradise for pirates, as it was littered with natural harbours and protected coves. They lurked in hiding on their small but fast galley ships packed with a hundred men, with fifty to row and fifty to fight. Tauta was not just a pirate, she was queen of the damn pirates. Everything was going so well and she was having a great time throwing her weight around until one day her pirates made a grave error and attacked some Italian merchants. You know what that means. Mighty Rome enters the room. The Roman Senate sent a couple of envoys to see the Queen and asked her to control her pirates. She told them that it was not her intention to make the Romans sad and promised not to attack them but with one important caveat. She told them, It is an ancient custom of the land of the Illyrians and of its rulers that the Queen does not interfere with the actions of her private citizens in taking plunder on the sea. The youngest envoy responded with, Queen Tauta, the Romans have an excellent tradition, which is that the state concerns itself with punishing those who commit private wrongs and with helping those who suffer them. With the gods' help we shall do our utmost and that very soon to make you reform this ancient custom of your kings. Oh dear. The Queen was livid and had pirates board his ship on its return to Rome, who swiftly sent their envoy to hang out with Hades. In case I was too obscure, they killed him dead. When the news reached the Roman Senate, they were fuming and declared war on Tauta and her kingdom of pirates in 229 BCE. 
Rome came stomping in, and over the next two years smashed town after town to bits until Tauta surrendered in 227 BCE. Rome granted her the right to continue ruling a small area in Illyria as long as she paid tribute to Rome and acknowledged its sovereignty. She wasn't about that life, so she stepped down from the throne. Legend has it that she killed herself by jumping off a cliff in the Bay of Kotor in the modern-day Montenegro. What I find most badass about Queen Tauta is that she took on the might of the Roman Empire. She might have gambled and lost, but at least she had the balls to piss them off. Let us leave Europe and jump ahead almost 2,000 years till North Africa. Saida al-Hura was a pirate queen of Tetuan. Her name literally translates from Arabic as lady who is free and independent. She was queen of Tetuan in Morocco in the early 16th century. This is a time in history when the Portuguese and Spanish had started colonising Moroccan ports. You've heard of Catherine of Aragon, who was the first wife of Henry VIII. Well, her parents were Isabella of Castile and Ferdinand II of Aragon, the Catholic monarchs of Spain. They'd taken Granada, which had been held by the Muslim Nazrid dynasty since the 13th century. Ferdinand and Isabella started persecuting the Muslim population, forcing them to convert to Catholicism. The delightful pair were also responsible for the infamous Spanish Inquisition, which was intended to identify heretics among those who converted from Judaism and Islam to Catholicism. The Inquisition prosecuted 150,000 people and was responsible for the execution of between 3 and 5,000 people. Saida was born in Granada, but forced to flee Morocco after the Spanish monarchy started removing Muslims from Spain. She was an intelligent woman who came from a privileged background which afforded her a good education. In the early 16th century, she was married and was granted permission by the Sultan to settle in the coastal town of Tetuan, which had been abandoned a hundred years earlier. Saida and her husband rebuilt the city and fortified it and made it into a thriving port. As you can imagine, Saida was angry about the way that her people had been treated by her Catholic enemies and turned to piracy to take her revenge. Yes! In 1515, her husband dies, and this is when she really went for it. Saida vowed to avenge her people and forged an alliance with a notorious pirate called Orich Rees, known to the West as Barbarossa. The cause was close to his heart as he had used his pirate fleet to take Muslim refugees from Spain to Africa as the persecution of religious minorities intensified. This earned him the nickname Baba Orich, which translates to Father Orich. To the European ear, this was misheard as Barbarossa, which happened to mean Redbeard in Italian. Orich was a fearsome pirate and is supposed to have sported a silver arm, but this apparently didn't stop him being an incredible swordsman. If you were losing, you could always whip your arm off and beat someone to death with it. It's said that Orich taught her the ways of piracy in the Mediterranean Sea. With her partnership established, Saida sailed the Mediterranean Sea with rage in her sails and terrorised Spanish and Portuguese ships. She raided ships and towns and took many Christian captives. She used these captives to negotiate a ransom from the Portuguese and Spanish. A Portuguese envoy described her as a very aggressive and bad-tempered woman. That tends to come with the territory when a woman enters a man's world. It's interesting to call Saida a pirate because all she was doing was retaliating when the Iberians were colonising her homeland and enslaving her people. I'd be doing the same. Saida grew so powerful that she married the Sultan of Morocco, but refused to leave Tetuan, making him travel to her for the ceremony, which is a pretty big flex. 
It was the only time in Moroccan history that a sultan married outside of the Moroccan capital. She ruled for 27 years until she was dicked over by a son-in-law who usurped her in 1542, invading Tetuan with a small army. Saida lived another 20 years and died in 1561 and was the last female ruler to hold the title of queen. She is considered to be one of the most important female figures of the Islamic West. Say goodbye to the lovely weather of Morocco as we visit the lush emerald isle of Ireland. Grania O'Malley, commonly referred to as the English version Grace O'Malley, is probably one of the most famous pirate lasses in history. She was born around 1530 when Henry VIII had the English throne and also held the title Lord of Ireland. At that time, the Irish princes and lords were left to it by the English, but this changed over the course of Grania's life, as the Tudor conquest of Ireland started to ramp up, colonising Ireland and suppressing the Irish language and customs in an attempt to anglicise the native population. Grania's family were on the western coast of Ireland, in County Mayo, where they built a row of castles facing the unforgivable sea to protect their territory. Her family were an independent clan that, like many other coastal clans, engaged in piracy, so it was a family business. Folklore has it that the young Grania begged her father to take her on an expedition to Spain. She was told that her hair was too long and would get caught in the ship's ropes. Not content with that answer, she cut off all her hair to embarrass her dad into taking her with him. This earned her the name Gronya Well, which translates from Gaelic as Bold Gronya. Gronya became a formidable sea captain. She knew the Irish coast so well that it said she had an exceptional talent at disappearing into the mist. At the age of 16, Gronya married Dono Alfata and had three children with him. He was a rich man and by his death 19 years later, she had accrued quite a substantial fortune. When Donal was killed in an ambush while hunting, Gronya returned to her own land and took up residence on Clare Island. It's alleged that she took a shipwrecked sailor as a lover, but he was killed by a rival clan. In a rage, she attacked and took the clan's castle of Duna and killed her lover's murderers, which earned her the nickname the Dark Lady of Duna. In 1566, Gronya married her second husband known as Iron Richard Burke, apparently to expand her property. His nickname came from his habit of always wearing chainmail. He lived in an area full of sheltered harbours which was perfect for pirates. At the time, marriages could be easily annulled before the first anniversary. So one day, when he returned to the castle from a trip, he found the castle gates locked and Gronya yelling down from the battlements that he was dismissed. However, I've also found during research that she remained married to Richard until his death in 1583. So perhaps their marriage was just turbulent rather than finished with. Legend has it that she attempted to visit a bloke called Baron Houth at his home at Houth Castle, but she was turned away because the family was eating. This pissed her off, so she retaliated by abducting the Houth heir, which is a a bit of an overreaction. The Baron negotiated the return by offering Gronje a permanent seat at his dinner table, which is still honoured today. Queen Elizabeth I ruled England and was trying to rule Ireland and bring it under English control. In 1578, the English governor threw Gronje into the dungeons of Dublin Castle. Iron Richard rises in rebellion and to placate him, she is released. Six years later, Elizabeth appoints Sir Richard Bingham as Gronje's local governor. He was determined to bring Gronje under England's control. She raises a rebellion against him and essentially becomes a massive thorn in his side. Bingham's brother murders Gronje's eldest son, Owen, which of course only stoked to the fire. Bingham lures Gronje to his headquarters under the guise of a truce. 
He proclaims her a traitor and condemns her to death. Thankfully, she's rescued by her son-in-law. All-out war is declared by Bingham in 1588, as he accuses Gronje of treason and of being the nurse to all rebellions in Ireland, reporting her to Elizabeth I. Bingham destroys a fleet of ships and seizes her son Tibbet, and also charges him with treason. Desperate to save her son, she writes to Elizabeth pleading for his release, and later sails to London to plead her case face to face. They are said to have met at Greenwich Palace with Gronje wearing a fine gown, the two of them surrounded by guards and members of the royal court. She refused to bow to Elizabeth because she didn't recognise her as the Queen of Ireland. It's also rumoured that she had a concealed dagger which the guards found during a search. Gronje assured the Queen that she only carried it for safety and Elizabeth remained pretty chill about it. It must have been dusty at court because Gronje sneezed and was handed a fancy-ass laced edge hanky which she used to blow her nose. She then threw it into the fire, which left the nobles shocked. Apparently, in Ireland at the time, a used handkerchief was considered gross and disposed of rather than washed and reused. With neither party able to speak each other's native languages, they conversed in Latin and Elizabeth agreed to remove Bingham from his position in return for Gronje ceasing to support the Irish lords' rebellions. This didn't solve everything, though, and Gronje continued to fire the English until her death in 1603, the same year as Elizabeth I. A fearless leader, politician, plunderer, rebel and matriarch, reputedly fond of gambling, swearing and drinking, her life was anything but ordinary. She is the embodiment of an Irish warrior queen. She's inspired many artists to create works based on her adventures, being covered in music, theatre, film and literature. We're going to sail over the Irish Sea and jump forward a few hundred years and give merry old England a visit. In the late 17th century, an English woman was married to a sailor and gave birth to a son. When the sailor disappeared at sea, she became pregnant after having an affair and shortly after lost her son. She gave birth to a daughter who was to become one of the most famous pirates in English history, known as Mary Reed. Or was she? Mary's mother was getting financial support from her mother-in-law, so in desperation disguised Mary as her dead son in order to keep receiving money. Mary became Mark, and mother and daughter lived on the support until she died when Mary was 13. Despite no longer needing to keep up the charade, Mary continued to dress in men's clothing and found work on a ship being a powder monkey, carrying bags of gunpowder from the ship's hold to the gun crews. A really dangerous job. Later, she joined the British military and proved herself in battle. She met a husband who was a Flemish soldier, who I assume at some point figured out that she wasn't a dude and they bought an inn together called the Three Horses in the Netherlands. Upon the untimely death of her husband, she resumed her life as a man and hopped on a Dutch ship to sail to the West Indies to start a new adventure. The ship was captured by English pirates. Dun dun dun! The crew, recognising her as a fellow Englishman, encouraged her to join them. They apparently had no inkling that she was a lass. She was aggressive, ruthless and swore like the foul-mouthed sailor that she was. She wore loose shirts to cover her boobs and no one seemed to notice her lack of beard, as many of the crew were teenagers who also lacked a five o'clock shadow. It's also likely that the poor diet of sailors put a stop to her periods, which might have given her away. It was on this ship that she met Anne Bonny, who was another famous pirate. Bonny was in a relationship with the ship's quartermaster, Calico Jack Rackham, and was also famous for dressing in men's clothes. She had a similar upbringing in that she was also raised as a boy to hide an extramarital deed committed by a father with a servant girl. 
It's said that she was a rebel and launched her pirate career faking a murder by smearing a mannequin with fake blood. When a passing French ship saw her wielding an axe over the apparently dead body, they surrendered their cargo without question. Anne seemed to fall for Mary and they got close, sending Calico Jack into a jealous rage. He burst into Mary's cabin with the intent to slit her throat and discovered Mary stretched out on the bed before Anne, not entirely clothed. There's a casual mention here and there about how Mary and Anne were close, but come on. They were both obviously bi as fuck, not content with limiting themselves to just one dessert at the buffet table. The absolute bi-cons that were Anne and Mary took command of a ship together and started raiding loads of other vessels. One of the victims of their piracy was owned by Anne's former lover. Anne seduced the captain, drugged his wine and doused the firing pins of his cannons with water. She returned to her ship the next morning and came back with her crew. When they were unable to fire their cannons, Anne and Mary took the ship and the only casualty was the captain, apparently killed by a jealous Mary. Eventually, Anne and Mary were captured by a British naval captain. In the heat of battle, their crew abandoned them and refused to fight. Pissed off, Mary shot two of her own crew as well as wounding Calico Jack. It took the British crew two hours to subdue these two badasses, but eventually they and their crew were taken to trial and sentenced to death. Anne and Mary pleaded their bellies and were pardoned by the court. This was a common plea in which women claimed to be pregnant in order to delay their executions, and there are varying accounts as to whether either of them were actually pregnant. Anne visited Calico Jack before he was hanged and said, I am sorry to see you in this predicament, but had you fought like a man you would not have to die like a dog. Ooh, imagine hearing that, it cut you like a knife. Unfortunately, shortly after, Mary died of a fever in jail and Anne disappears from the records. Get on your junk ships, friends, because we're heading to 19th century China. From prostitute to pirate captain, Ching Shi lived an incredible life in the early 19th century. She was abducted from a floating Cantonese brothel by notorious pirate Captain Cheng I. There are conflicting accounts of whether Ching Shi was a madam or a prostitute and whether she was abducted by Captain Cheng or whether she went with him willingly. Either way, by 1801, she was married to Captain Cheng and she was joint head of the Red Flag Fleet. The power couple grew the fleet from a respectable 200 ships to a fearsome 1,800 ships over the following months and soon became the most feared fleet in the South China Sea. The ships were called junk ships and had a distinct curve with sails that had big concertina folds in them. Upon joining the crew, Ching set about setting some new rules for the red flag fleet. If pirates refused to follow orders, executed. If they gave unauthorised orders, executed. Infidelity or rape, executed. Premarital sex, you got it, dead, dead, dead. Lesser offences included underreporting goods, which only lost you a body part. She also set out rules about the treatment of prisoners, particularly the treatment of female prisoners. Prisoners that were deemed undesirable were released unharmed as these would be no use to the crew. Any pirate that wanted to take a beautiful prisoner as his wife was free to do so, but he had to be faithful to her. So, brilliant. You're taken prisoner by some horrible pirates and forced to marry one of them, but on the upside he'll be loyal. Not much of a comfort when you probably don't want to marry the bloke anyway. It feels like Ching Shi was trying to be a good woman, but from the point of view of the captive, it feels a bit like a half-assed effort. What would be better than making the pirates marry their captives before they raped them would probably be not taking any captive at all. 
This is an episode about pirates though, and we can all agree that pirates are arseholes. It's said that Ching Shi bore Captain Cheng two sons, but they also kidnapped and then adopted a fisherman's son called Chung Po, and made him Cheng's legal heir. Six years later, it's said he fell, insert air quotes here, overboard during a typhoon off the coast of Vietnam, but some fingers point at his wife. After his death, she soon formed a partnership with her adopted son, and there are rumours that the relationship became intimate. It's literally like the most shocking episode of Pirate EastEnders ever. Under the command of Ching Shi, the Red Flag Fleet raided and captured villages along the coast of the China Sea. The Red Flag Fleet terrorised British and French colonisers, plundering their goods and killing their crews. She was a cruel and powerful pirate captain who was known as the Terror of South China. Anyone who resisted her had their feet nailed to her ship's deck and beaten. She took countless ships, becoming quite a bothersome person to the Chinese, Portuguese and British. In 1810, the Chinese authorities finally accepted that they could not defeat the fleet and offered amnesty to all of the Red Fleet's pirates, hoping that their reign over the seas would come to an end. Chung Po was given responsibility to negotiate with the government, but negotiations hit a stalemate as no one could agree on what should happen with the loot. Ching Shi then took matters into her own hands and arrived at the government offices unarmed, accompanied by 17 women and children. It's not clear why she thought that this would be useful, but I guess she could easily get smashed by a group of 17 women. It clearly was effective though, and it was agreed that she could keep all of her booty. She took this pardon with both hands and stepped back from her life as a pirate and lived out the rest of her days as the owner of a gambling den in Canton. Oh my goodness, I loved researching this episode so much! I pretty much knew nothing about any of these incredible women and it was such a pleasure learning about their lives and what they were able to achieve in times when women were unlikely to hold positions of power. Women can be just as ruthless, cruel and determined as men and I admire their dedication to just go for what they wanted to achieve. And that's your lot today, history fans. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Be sure to share with other history nerds if you enjoyed it and to get a shout out in a future episode, leave a five-star review on iTunes. Reviews really help the podcast grow and more importantly, I like to hear people say nice things about me. I don't want to show off, but I'm currently 247th in the history podcast charts in India, so I think I'm well on my way to becoming very, very famous. Five-star reviews this week, here we go! Joe Rasp says, The history of things we take for granted is something I didn't know I'd find super interesting. I also really like the historical context of what was happening around the world when Natalie moves to a new era. Heartily recommend. Welsh Pete says, Professional and informative. Plus, Natalie has a lovely radio voice too. Can't wait for the next one. Highly recommended. Thank you as ever for your kind words. To get in touch, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore across the ages, or you can like my page on Facebook at Across the Ages Pod. Keep an eye out for the next episode where I'll be delving into another topic, Across the Ages. <laughs> <laughs>